Good morning, brothers and sisters. If you would please turn in your Bibles with me to the epistle of 1 Corinthians. We'll be looking at the entire first chapter this morning. It's on page 952, if you're looking on your pew Bibles. First Corinthians, reading the first chapter. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all word and all knowledge, even as the witness about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end, beyond reproach in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not in wisdom of word, so that the cross of Christ will will not be made empty. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside." Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified." To Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised, 
God has chosen. He has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, dear Lord, there is so much in this passage this morning, more than we could ever cover in one afternoon, but there are powerful truths in this message, Father, and we ask that through your word being preached that you would proclaim them to us, that you would have us all gather here in this building today under Christ as the head of the church, understand that he is Lord over us that you are our God and there is no other, that we find redemption, we find salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other gospel. There is no other message. We have no other master. We ask that you would teach us that today. Through this message, we would be unified, that we would be built up, that we would be encouraged and exhorted to gather together continually in all times, in all places, calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and proclaiming him as the only Savior by which men may be saved. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you look at or you consider the United States, America, what is your first thought when you think of the United States of America? For me, I get flashbacks to being a toddler in first and second grade when they would take you through and they would teach you about our founding fathers. They would teach you about Abraham Lincoln chopping down a cherry tree. They would teach you about George Washington right, sailing across the river. They would teach you about the stars and stripes, about Betty Ross weaving the first flag about patriotism. Those are the kinds of things that we think about when we're growing up because those are the things that we're taught. We're taught that this is a united nation. We hear that motto, united we stand, divided we fall. One of the mottos that's on some of our currency and some of our, our, our official seal is e pluribus unum, from the many, one. We are not merely one nation of America. We are a gathered grouping of states that are unified in purpose, that are unified as as a strong nation that is uh, 50 states. It was 13 when it started. But a bunch of states that even though we are individuals, we are one and we stand together. Now look at the reality of what America is right now. When you think of America right now, when people are preaching to you on the nightly news, when you see America as a country on the, on the, on the picture right behind the reporter, what do you see? Because I see a lot of red states and blue states. I see a lot of people trying to polarize our nation, not trying to make us one united nation, but trying to say we are segregated, we are different, and that these differences cannot be mended. Some people say our country should divide into red states and blue states. Well, what's the problem with that? The moment that you segregate us and say we have now red state country and a blue state country, within those states, you have division. You 
of Republicans and Democrats and all these different people saying, I want to be heard, I want to be heard, and they still butt heads. Through division, you get more division. In a way, we have the same misconception when we look at the early church. When you think about the early church, what's the first thing you think about? I sort of get this little picture in my head about these little home Bible studies with people sitting in these small enclosed rooms, gathered around the Word of God, holding hands, singing hymns, and praising God, and being resilient in the face of persecution and opposition. But the reality, when you look at the Word of God, especially you know, in the New Testament, what you see is that the, the early church was a mess. They had a lot of problems. They needed to be corrected. They needed to be constantly encouraged. They needed to be set on the right path. The entire New Testament is pretty much just teaching the new church how to be the church. Right In the book of Ephesians, the church had to be encouraged that even though they were living in this weird world where now Jews and Greeks weren't different things, they were the same things, they were combined into one through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had to learn how to take that gospel truth and now apply it to their lives in every aspect of their lives. The Galatian church needed to be corrected, right? They needed to be warned because there were Judaizers in the Galatian church that were telling people, telling all these Greeks and Gentiles that were coming into the church that they needed to start acting more like Jews. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to live by the old law. Paul's like, no. We are under a new covenant. We are under Christ now. We have a new, the, the authority isn't, those were old rules. Those were established by God to separate the Jews from the rest of the world. But now we are under one banner of Christ. The Philippian church was facing persecution and Paul was in prison. He wasn't sure if he was going to be able to get out. He thought he might be executed. So he was encouraging them to live by the example of Jesus Christ. Thessalonica, it was the same problem. They were facing immense persecution. And Paul was writing to them to say, don't focus on the persecution you have now, but look forward to a future hope. There is a resurrection. There is new life in Jesus Christ. And all the rest of the apostles, James was preaching, telling people that now that you have faith in Jesus Christ, don't let that be just a personal faith. It has to act out in, in works. You have to be a good person. You can't just hold your faith to yourself and say, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ, it's so great for me. No, you have to do good for other people. You have to live out that faith in your life. And Peter, near the end of his life, when he was about to be executed in prison, he was concerned because the church wasn't prepared and they were starting to listen to false teachers. So he had to tell them, do not listen to false teachers. Hold fast to the truths of the Bible. And then even with John, who had to, preach to the churches and tell them that even though they were facing a problem where people were leaving the church, he's saying, don't worry. Hold fast to your salvation. Follow the light of Jesus Christ. The entire church had problems. The entire church needed to be corrected, exhorted, taught, encouraged, and warned. And then we get to the Corinthian church. This was the church that was established during Paul's second missionary journey sometime around 50 to 52 AD. Chris, uh, those who don't know, Corinth is a 
It's, it's located at the very southern part of Greece. You know, if you look at, you know, Italy, where it's like the boot, and it's kicking Sicily. You move a little bit east, you get Greece. And at the very bottom of Greece, there's a peninsula, the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And there's a little strip of land that was connecting Athens to that peninsula. And that little strip of land is called an Ismith, And Corinth, Corinth was located right on that. So people who wanted to travel from Athens to the peninsula had to travel through this road. And people that were on either side, where there was a coast on both sides, it was a port city with, with ships leaving. It was a bustling city. It was filled with people. It was a Gentile community. And because of that, it had a lot of temples to foreign gods, to Roman and Greek gods. There was a, lot of, there was a big problem with polytheism there, and there's also a big problem with prostitution, temple prostitution in particular. So after Paul is with them for about a year and a half, he leaves, and then he starts receiving notices about how the Corinthian church is doing. And then while he's on his third missionary journey, he writes to Corinth to deal with all the problems that he's been hearing about. This entire epistle is him dealing with one problem after the other. We see him dealing with division in the first few chapters. Then he's dealing with sexual sin and sexual immorality that had infested the church. They were defrauding one another. He deals with that as well. We see him dealing with things like meat being sacrificed to idols. There were Jews that said, no, you can't do that. You can't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. The Gentiles didn't see a problem with it. So he had to show them. He had to correct them. He said, you know, you can, you know, meat sacrificed to idols doesn't mean anything unless you believe it's been sacrificed to an idol, but you still maintain integrity when you're with your brother. You don't cause your brother to sin. Then he's talking about worship and the church, head coverings, Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, how those are to be conducted, how we are to edify and build up one another. And then he finally, at the very end, he's talking about the resurrection because there were those in the church that were even denying the resurrection would take place. So Paul is hearing about all of these problems, and he decides to send this letter to the Corinth church. And he starts where? He says, I need to deal with all these matters in the church. What is the root problem of all of this? And it's authority. He says, if I'm going to get people to align properly when it comes to sexual immorality, when it comes to meat sacrifice to idols, when it comes to worship in the church, when it comes to the resurrection... They all need to be following the proper authority. They need to be following Jesus Christ. They need to hold fast to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul starts in this text. We see that in verses 10 to 12. He says, Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Paul is getting word that these individuals were following their teachers. It's It's sectarianism, it's following parties, it's dividing yourself into these little subgroups, just like we were talking about earlier. Saying, I'm going to be of this clique, and I'm going to be of this clique. I prefer Paul's teaching, I prefer Bob's teaching. I'm going to follow these gentlemen. Everything else is separate. 
People do that today. There's a lot of popular preachers out there. Some of them are wonderful preachers. Paul Watcher, John MacArthur, you know, you just, a lot of people still listen to R.C. Sproul, as we should. He's a wonderful preacher. But we don't follow, we don't follow popular preachers. We follow truth. We follow the Word of God, people that are preaching the Word of God. Even those that in, this, in verse 12, they say, and I of Christ. You might think, well, sure, you should be of Christ. But what he's saying there is that those are the people that are, you know, just me and my Bible, just Christ in me. You know, there's Paul and there's Apollos, but I'm not going to have anything to do with leadership. I'm not going to have anything to do with pastoral authority. I'm going to follow Christ and Christ alone. You do what you want as a church. We don't do that either. We are under the authority of Jesus Christ, and Christ, by his wisdom, has appointed pastors and overseers to take care of us. We submit to those authorities because those are good things. God has provided them as a blessing for the church. We don't partake in those things begrudgingly, right? We don't become problems for our elders or our pastors. We don't do things out of, out of necessity, but because God has put these people in charge of us. It says that they will give an account of our souls. They are constantly up here and down there talking with you, conversing with you, uh, you know, counseling you so that they can take an account of your souls. It's for your good. We don't separate from them. We don't separate from the word of God. It's all under the same authority. We sit under our elders as a collective body of Christ. We sit under Christ. Christ is under God. That's what the word of God teaches us. So how does... Paul correct this division. On the first 10 verses of this chapter, he uses the phrase, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, or the Lord Jesus Christ, 10 times. Using the the word Lord, kurios, six times in those 10 verses. Beginning in verse uh, 1, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I have been sent under the authority of Jesus Christ. You should be listening to me. I'm not separate from Christ. I am under Christ. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That's a beautiful verse because not only does it tell us that this this book is for us too? It's not just for the Corinthians. But seeing the, the, the seriousness of the matter, Paul addresses this to every Christian, everyone who is in any place who calls upon Jesus Christ as their Lord. And through that double-down address, he's also adding the theology. He's saying you're not just yourselves isolated. Not only should you be unified of one sound mind and body together, but you're also unified with the other churches. Everyone who is redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is one church together. You are all the same body of Christ. In verses 3 and 4, we read, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you 
in Christ Jesus. The unmerited favor of grace that we have, that we do not deserve, it flows directly out of Jesus Christ. And that is a beautiful, beautiful truth. Peace, in verse 3, also flows directly out of Jesus Christ. He is our peace. We have no peace with God without Jesus Christ. His propitiation, his taking upon himself the weight of sin, the suffering of sin, the penalty of sin, causes us to have peace with God. Verse 6, even as the witness about Christ, which was confirmed in you, also might say in your, in your text, testimony. It's the gospel that we are all speaking of the same Jesus Christ. We all confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. With one voice, together, we are all preaching the same message. Verse 7, it says that we await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That day of the Lord when he returns in judgment. When we will no longer see him as a suffering servant, but a returning king with the authority to judge and to separate and to divide. The believers, those that believed in him and those that denied him. And then in verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sort of bringing it all together. Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is our Lord. He stands over us. And he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, through whom we have fellowship. Not There's no... Uh, anonymity between us and God anymore. We now have fellowship with God. We can approach God. We approach the, the throne of God boldly without fear because of what Christ has done for us and because we come under the banner of his protection. So we see when we finally get to verse 10, when he finally actually brings the accusation against the, the Corinthian church, he's already made his case. Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Right? He's already said, Jesus Christ is our Lord. Jesus Christ is our Savior. Jesus Christ is the one that we are under. He just keeps saying it over and over and over again. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, there's divisions of you. Who wants to make a case to me that there should be any division among you? That's why when we get to verse 13, it's a rhetorical question. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? By that point, it should become crystal clear that we are not divided, but we are unified, every single one of us, in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Second Corinthians 11, 
We read, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds would be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes to preach another Jesus who we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you did not receive, or a different gospel which you did not accept, you bear this beautifully. We reject any and all other versions of Christ. We have to know the Christ that we are being preached about. We have an obligation. We have a responsibility where it says we need to know who it is that we worship. We need to know Jesus Christ as he is revealed to us in the Bible so that we can be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. There are many, many false Christs out today. So we need to understand who Christ is. We need to understand his relationship, that he is the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. We deny oneness. We deny that God is one single being and one single person. We deny modalism. We deny oneness. He is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, one being, three people that are all in authority over us. We have to understand his authority that he is referred to here as the Kurios, the Lord. He has authority. He's also referred elsewhere as the firstborn, right? Not a physical birth, but talking about him in relationship to having the inheritance as the firstborn. He's the one with the authority. He's the one with the inheritance. He's the one entitled to to receive authority from God the Father because he humbled himself before God the Father. And then we understand, finally, his purpose. As Jesus said, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus came to glorify God. And it also said that he came to save sinners. He came to suffer and die on a cross so that we could be reconciled to him. No longer under the the penalty of sin, but now joining with him in his inheritance. Adopted heirs of Christ. And then Paul finalizes that in the last part in uh, 13 to 17. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did not baptize also the household of Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to proclaim the gospel not in wisdom of words, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. He's just adding that little bit so that you understand there's no division. I don't, I'm grateful that I didn't give you any reason to put me any higher on any pedestal. The only one you follow is Jesus Christ. He is your Lord. He is the only one you look up to. You listen to me as an authority simply because I've been sent 
by him. I am his messenger. You listen to me because I am getting this message from him. In the next portion of this text, verses 17 to 25, he now has made his case that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's taught them about proper authority. You are all under Jesus Christ, your Lord God. So now that he's made that case, he now has to correct them as far as their authority in the gospel understand that the gospel has power over us. For I did, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not in wisdom of words, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside where is the wise man, where is the scribe, where is the debater of this age? Has, God made, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So in this section, we're seeing that God is now, he's, he's creating a, an opposition. He's pitting wisdom against foolishness. And he's showing us that the world has its own set of wisdom. He's he's pitting the world against himself. He's pitting the perishing against the saved. Saying the world is defining wisdom on its own terms, but I have my own terms of wisdom and I will win out. Because this is, as it says here, it is the power of God in 18. God has the power. He has the will. It's up to him to define what is wisdom and what is foolishness. Romans 1. We read, For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Because God defines wisdom, because God is the only one who is truly wise, and because God has given us the gospel message to preach, we preach it with boldness. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about wisdom. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about the gospel. The gospel is going to be a foolish message because God has designed it to be foolishness. He's designed it to be an impossible message. And therefore, we preach it with boldness. John MacArthur said, Listen, the only time the church has made any spiritual impact on the world is when the church has stood firm, uncompromising, unwavering, and boldly proclaiming the truth right into the face of the enemy. If you put your trust in God and you put your trust in the gospel, you understand that the gospel will have its effects apart from anything else you do. 
We proclaim the message because we understand that it's the power of God unto salvation. We have no effect on the souls of people. We don't win souls to Christ. We don't intercede in an effective way in which people will come to Christ based solely on what we do. Told faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have but one message to preach. We are called to preach it. And it's through that message that people will be won to Christ. No other means. We pray for those that have fallen. We pray for those we care about because we understand that we care about people. And we want to be aligned with the will of God. We want to be transformed by the will of God, not the other way around. It's not about making God do the things we want God to do. It's about asking God to transform us so that we live in light of who he is. Verses 19 and 20, we read, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's quoting from Isaiah 29, 14 there. And as he's talking about the, the proclamation in, 20, in the Old Testament, and now he's asking these rhetorical questions, he's saying essentially, he's already done this. Making the wisdom of the world foolishness isn't something that's going to come later. It's already happened. They already have no testimony against me. They have nothing they can say. They have no wisdom they can throw at me at this point. I have already undone everything they know about the world and about truth. I have turned their wisdom into foolishness. Not that there's not wisdom, not that there's not science, not that there's not art, not that there's not knowledge and understanding. Right? The point is that there is no knowledge or understanding or philosophy that anybody could ever have that will draw them closer to God. It is a gospel message, an impossible message. It is foolishness. The wisdom of this world cannot save you. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, to, to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. As we go out evangelizing into the world, you will hear a lot of tales about what you need to do to be saved. You will hear a ton of things that the world will tell you about why you're wrong, about how there are other paths to heaven, about why God doesn't exist, about why God doesn't want us to suffer, about why the Bible can't be trusted. It's because they search for signs and wisdom. They need to be convinced in their heads that salvation is possible by some means. But their heart is darkened. Their heart is dead. And unless it is transformed, unless it is made new, unless it is made alive, it cannot receive the gospel. 
They cannot hear it. They certainly cannot believe it. What's required is a spiritual humility. And that's what you need if you want to believe in the gospel message. You need to be humble. You need to realize that there is nothing in any of you that could ever save you. You have no wisdom. You have no righteousness. You have no goodness. You have nothing to offer to God. Nothing. There is no work you could ever do to undo the sin that is upon you. doesn't matter what it is. I don't care if you're walking down the street and you push an old lady out, out of the way of a speeding bus while at the same time disarming a terrorist who's about to shoot a small group of blind children. It's not enough. If that is the best thing you ever did, it's not enough. Jesus says it is filthy rags before God. It is worthless. And if your best thing you could ever do is worthless, then what do you do? The gospel says you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came in the flesh to live the perfect life you could not live, to suffer the death you didn't want to suffer, take upon him the hell that you didn't want to face, to be buried and raise again as the first fruits, the firstborn, so that you could live in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's what we believe in. It is foolishness. I have to put my faith in somebody who died, some Jewish Nazarene, son of a carpenter, someone who wasn't respected by the the church, somebody who wasn't respected by the elders of the the Jews of that day, a man who was beaten, who was bruised, who was was scourged and then crucified, a a sinner's death. He was scourged along with thieves. You want me to believe in that person. You want me to believe in that man for my salvation. God says, that's the only thing you can believe that will save you. It is foolishness. And those who are called to it, the people in this room that believe that, a peculiar group of people. I see people, a lot of different races, many different ages, men and women, children and elders, together, unified, in that gospel message. But you have to ask yourselves, if you are truly unified in that message, is there any division in you? Is there anything that's causing you to separate from a brother or sister in Christ? If you look left or right, do you see all the faces here? Do you know all these people? Have you met all these people? Do you believe the same things that they believe? If you're a member of this church, you are bound to these people. You are the church of grace and truth. We should be one body, complete in in everything, in sound, the same mind and the same judgment. Talk to each other. Investigate. Ask them what they believe. Talk about theology. Talk about God. These are important issues. We disciple one another. As we come to the closing verses in this chapter, we see that this is all something that God does. 
Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are all you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul said, I will boast in my infirmities. If you feel weak, be weak. Be a weak Christian, but preach the gospel. If you feel that you're a fool, you're untaught, you feel foolish, you feel stupid, be a stupid Christian. But learn the Bible and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to do. He tells us to consider our calling. He has chosen the foolish, the weak, the despised, the base and insignificant things of the world so that he would be glorified. You want to tell me about how wise and how strong you are? I will take something that is insignificant. Just like me, I am absolutely an insignificant person. And God utilizes me through saving me and allowing me to teach and to preach and to evangelize and to, to, to proclaim God's truth. He is glorified. Because it's all about God. It's all meant to bring glory to him. Because Christ, as it says in 30 and 31, We are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We already talked about the wisdom. Righteousness. If you read Romans 4, you'll see how faith credits us righteousness before God. And now because of that, we are covered. We are forgiven of our sin. Sanctification. We are set apart, being made ready. As 1 Peter tells us, we are a chosen family. Redemption, those that are restored and forgiven, as it talks about in Ephesians 1. This tells us anything. It tells us that we can be unified in our doctrine. It's what we're called to do. Notice what the text does not say. It says, you are fools for the sake of Christ, but it doesn't tell us to be ignorant. It doesn't tell us to avoid theology. I hear a whole lot of people that have talked to me and says, as I talk to people about certain things, this is important, this is not important. We're called, more. it's more important to love people than to learn about sound doctrine. You know, we've had, I'm not going to name any names, but I've talked about people about eschatology, whether or not eschatology is important. Whether or not we need to make a distinction between mercy and grace. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is all theology. You depend on theology. Your life exists in God because of theology and sound doctrine. We are to be spiritually mature. Look at where Paul goes with this in in chapter 3. 
Just a chapter over, as he continues in verse 1, And I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to fleshly men, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are still not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, when one says, I am of Paul, and another I say of, of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. We are called to grow in Christ. God doesn't call us to just be, just to, to hang on and to just be satisfied with milk. At a certain point, we should become spiritually mature. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul said, I delivered to you that which was first importance to me, that Christ died according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose the third day according to the scriptures. I didn't just deliver to you a message and say, God, Jesus Christ lived and was born, and, and he was born, and he was suffered, and he died, and he rose again. He did these things according to the Bible, according to sound doctrine. Don't tell me it's not important. Don't tell me I just need to love and I don't need to think. Don't tell me I just need to think and I don't need to love. Jesus Christ said you are to love the Lord your God with all your mind and all your heart and all your strength. Every aspect of your, of your lives should be 100% sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our doctrine will inform our actions. If you read Philippians 1.6 for... I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. You're learning about progressive sanctification. In Galatians 3, you learn about uh, substitutionary atonement. In Romans 8, you learn about justification. In John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that those who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You're learning about the Trinity. You're learning about propitiation. You're learning about redemption. These are important subjects. They're important topics. We teach about these things all the time. Do you know about the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Do you know what it means to be saved? Do you know about the sovereignty of God? Do you know about the decree of God? I have taught about those subjects personally in this very room, and the room is less than half full with people. They don't want to take the time to learn these things. These things are important. We're going to learn about regeneration today. How many people are going to stay to listen to that? How many people have thought about it? What it means to be washed in the blood of regeneration? But as I said, theology does not hang on its own thread. As we listen, we learn, and as we learn, we act out in our lives. Mark Devers said, Friend, the church finds its life as it listens to the word of God. It finds its purpose as it lives out and displays the word of God. The church's job is to listen and then to echo. I'll conclude here that Jesus Christ, he is our Lord. It's his gospel that unifies us. 
It's his wounds that have healed us. It's his blood that has covered us. It is his spirit that is sanctifying us and has sanctified us. Jesus does not unite us together to be separate from him, but to draw us all the more closer to him. I don't I'm going to close now, but if you read the high priestly prayer in John 17, you'll say that Jesus says that I pray that they may become one, just as you and I, Father, are one, and that they be made complete as one, and that they would be with us as one. We are to be unified with God and Christ through his message as our one and only Lord. That is his prayer, and it's my prayer for you as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much today that you have gathered us together once again as one body of Jesus Christ here at Grace and Truth and along with all the churches who in every place believe in your name, who believe in the true Jesus Christ of the Bible, not a made-up Savior, not an unrisen Lord, but the one who suffered and died and through that death, burial, and resurrection has made us well. We ask that you would remind us of that truth, that you would have us hold fast to that truth, and as we hold fast to it, we will proclaim you as a loving and righteous God, one that we can be thankful to and that we can glorify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.